This week on the Saber.com podcast, a look back at the Virginia baseball team's run to the College World Series and the whole year for UVA athletics, a segment on Trey Murphy's NBA draft stock, plus a look at Virginia recruiting, and in the Turning the Table segment, back to music with Metallica. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. And it is time once again for the Saber.com podcast as we're joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn from thesaber.com. I'm your host, Jeff Sweatman. We'll talk a little bit about tribute albums in our uh, final segment, kind of getting back to the music thing as we turn the tables, but lots of UVA sports to get to. In the meantime, we'll do kind of a recap of the overall state of things. And of course, we want to start with baseball, guys. What did you make of the run? Not how uh, UVA fans wanted it to end, of course, but Man, when you're in that final six or eight left in the entire uh, country, it's it's still pretty awesome to be there in Omaha. The first game was a win, shutout win over Tennessee. And then tough loss, tough, tough loss to Mississippi State. Seven no-hit innings and then ended up losing uh, six to five and then losing to Texas six to two. Still had to fight through, you know, rain delays and lots of umpire reviews. And <laughs> it was a lot of what we saw. Uh, the previous weekend in South Carolina, but it was kind of the the flip of that script, wasn't it? Where we had the timely hitting and the the bullpen uh, really came to the rescue at, at opportune times. Whereas in Omaha, it was it couldn't quite find enough timely hits, and and the bullpen just wasn't quite there the same way it had been the previous couple of weeks. So, what was your uh, your assessment? Obviously, frustrating way for it to end, at least in the lens of you want to try to win the national championship, particularly when you're in the last, the final eight, the final six, whatever you want to call it. So to, to miss out on that, it is frustrating because you did have that opportunity. And I think Virginia could have won, you know, could have won it if certain things broke correctly or certain timely hit or, or what have you. And really once they fell out of that winner's side, in other words, if you lose in pool play, if you lose one of your first two games, then you have to come back and win three in a row with the way the bullpen was based on who was warming up and what Steven shock looked like and what, why it looked like his second time, he looked great against Tennessee. His second time, it just seemed like maybe the bullpen had run out of gas and some guys were just not available on top of that. So Neek wasn't available. It seems like Bales, obviously who they made it to the super regional through the super regional without, (laughs) right. Which is crazy because he arguably was the best reliever on the team. Misses out on the time of year where everyone gets to see him in in the brightest spotlight. But yeah, I think that just kind of caught up to them once they fell out of that winner's bracket side. I tell you what though, like in terms of starting pitchers and performances, they got, (laughs) they got as good as you could get on that end, you know, Abbott, McGarry and then Vassal all like outstanding starts. Yeah. And got Virginia into the late innings, in some cases with the lead, and it just didn't hold up. And I think the key game, that Mississippi State game that dropped them to the to the loser's bracket side, McGarry was sensational, obviously. No hitter through seven, but it gets broken up in the eight. He, he was unreal. I mean, he was cooking. <laughs> so <laughs> that performance was was outstanding. And what he's done over the last month from being basically out of the out of the pitching rotation altogether, to being a star on the biggest stage, just incredible. And I think Brian O'Connor talked about that a little bit on the Packer and Durham show on the ACC network, but incredible his turnaround. But once they kind of you know lost that game and you felt like throughout early parts of that, when they had the lead and it was like, uh, man, they stranded a couple there. It'd been nice to have an insurance run up. Oh, oh man, there was another chance for an insurance. Once that added up over three or four different opportunities early in that game, you, you worried, <laughs> you worried that it might, sneak up and bite them. And and unfortunately it did. So, and the Texas game was similar where they just couldn't quite capitalize on what was a a quality start by Vassal. Another guy who early in the year was, was part of the rotation had kind of fallen out of it, but then on the biggest stage really showed up. So some really cool stories coming out of it, even though they didn't quite pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree with uh, pretty much everything you said, Chris, I think uh, the, the starting pitching was phenomenal. 
Um, you know, heading into the Texas game, you know, Mike Vassell, you know, his previous outings, you know, he was a, a real question mark coming in and for him to perform the way he did. And, you know, he, I felt like he gave UVA a chance because I felt like that was a game that if Texas comes out and, um, you know, they could knock out Virginia early and maybe that's kind of like a blowout. I know Texas pulled away late, but he, he pitched phenomenally. And, you know, I think, as you mentioned, I think the bullpen just kind of, you know, un- unfortunately, we didn't see much of Brandon Neek after that phenomenal performance earlier in the in the postseason. And then Stephen Shock against, you know, the 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 clincher against ODU and the regionals pitched 75 pitches. And he really, when he came out against Mississippi state, he just didn't look like he, the same guy. He didn't have it. He just didn't have it. And obviously they were able to take advantage. So the bullpen moving forward, had they even won against uh beaten Texas, that would have been a real question mark as to whether they could have won the whole thing in my mind. But yeah, that being said, the starting pitching was, uh, you know, Andrew Abbott, Griff McGarry, Mike Vassell was phenomenal. And Mississippi State, yeah, I think the real uh, what if is is definitely that Mississippi State game, and you know the early even though Virginia got up what four nothing early on, as you mentioned those runs that they had they had golden opportunities to add to that lead, and when you let a team like Mississippi State hang around, it doesn't take much as we saw in the eighth inning for them to get going with that fan base that they had there to really get rolling. So unfortunately they were able to do that, but the, the fight of this team is something that I always remember and I really just enjoyed watching from the regular season when they were pretty much almost down and out. I mean, they were a series away from not having a chance really to, to rally, but they did everything they needed to do to go into the ACC tournament to, to, to beat a a team uh, like Notre Dame, the way they did in the ACC tournament. I thought gave them some confidence and and that was really cool because Notre Dame had really just manhandled them in the regular season. And, you know, UVA arguably could have, could have won the ACC uh, championship. You know, they, they obviously lost against a, uh, a red hot Duke squad, but then to make it as far as they did the, the Logan Michael story with his father and the, the Tennessee opener opening win uh, coming in when, you know, it didn't seem like many people gave UVA that much of a chance against Tennessee, Tennessee, um, from what I was hearing, was a favorite to, you know, they were they were super hot, uh, heavy offense or, or you know top top notch offense. Uh, yeah, a lot of people were picking them, I think, to to make a, a real run and, and possibly win it all. For Virginia, you know, Andrew Abbott to come out and play the way he did, and then the Logan Michaels moment. You know, even though they didn't win, that felt like a that was that was a pretty much that was a great capper for me as far as the season for them to you know make it as far as they did and then have something like that. Um, even though again, again, they were in great position to possibly make it to the championship and didn't make it. And you know, as Coach O'Connor said, this class they committed to Virginia after uh, the the national championship uh, run that they had in 2015. So you know that the players were hoping to win the whole thing. But again, looking back, that capper of you know beating Tennessee the way they did, what the number two or three seed in the in the in the whole tournament, and play the way the way they did to make it to the final five or six uh, in the College World Series, I think is a great testament. Again, I'm going to look back on this team just with a lot of fond memories, just tough, resilient, and just just a lot of memories that they did provide, even though they didn't capture the whole thing. I know UVA fans were having fun with the graphic they showed at one point, where um, I don't know if it was I don't think it was during one of the UVA games, but it, uh, Mississippi State. We're recording this before the uh, the final game, as it co- the whole season comes down to one game here between uh, them and Vanderbilt. But uh, apparently, they're one of three Power Five programs that has no national titles in any sport of any kind ever. <laughs> one of the other two is our uh, our pals down in Blacksburg. So that was one. Uh, that was a screen capture I saw uh, floating around there. So yeah. Well, there's a uh, post on the baseball message board. Username is CMUHU. Says we need a collection plate or a donation drive for Kansas State. Figure out what sport they're good at and what we'll just flood Kansas State's donation uh, for that sport, right? So maybe volleyball or something. Yeah. Uh, particularly if Mississippi State, like you said, pulls it off uh, mm-hmm. after we record this. But. <laughs> Oh man. Well, and uh, one more mention of the Gatorade player of the year in the state of Virginia, as far as baseball goes, Griffin O'Farrell has signed to UVA. I guess he signed with UVA and then he won the award, which is pretty awesome. So UVA has gotten four of the last five winners in terms of, you know, if you're looking at that award as being the best player in the state, 
uh, Jay Wolfolk uh, being one of them, and uh, current uh, UVA pitchers, Savino and, and Abbott uh, were, were previous winners of that award. So good signs uh, on the horizon, and yeah, looking forward to uh, next year. <laughs> when, when do pitchers and catchers report? <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Summer ball first, right, or a break, depending on which player you're talking about. But certainly some stars born among the Virginia fan base late in the season here, right? Um, with the rally they made from where they were the first day of April through where things finished, won a lot of people over. And I think we mentioned that on the podcast previously, that there seems to be a connection with the fan base to this particular team. And a lot of those guys are back. And, you know, Kyle Teal is the first one off the <laughs> off the top of my head there who really broke out, had an outstanding postseason, has been good all year. He was really, really good in the College World Series. He, he was coming up with clutch hits and getting on base and things like that. So kind of starting there, that's one guy that's back. And there are a long list of guys who are back. The younger Geloff, Newell, and you can go on down the line of, of some of the key contributors in the postseason are returning. Should be interesting uh, to see what that does. Does that propel them to another really strong season? You know, do they make it back to the postseason again? Like, how does it kind of reset the program to make Omaha? Will Kyle Teal find a helmet that fits next year? That's what I'm looking Hope not. for next year. <laughs> I know you kind of have to keep rolling with it until it uh, until <laughs> it doesn't work anymore. But yeah, no, he, he's coming. I mean, Chris Newell to me was kind of a story for me. He came in with such high expectations this year, and he struggled a lot at the plate while maintaining his his uh, you know his fantastic defense and range in the in center field. But um, he had a really good College World Series as well. So you wonder if that's a springboard for him looking towards next year because obviously. Uh, uh, he and Teal will but will be counted upon to be big time contributors. It seems like Zach Geloff is probably headed off toward Major League Baseball, I would assume. But yeah, some some talented pieces, and then uh, you know Coach O'Connor always does a pretty good job recruiting. So uh, it'll be interesting to see who 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 arrives on grounds and and can contribute as well, and then who they add through the transfer market, like uh, like they did with with Bales and, and those guys. So yeah, Matt Wyatt. You know, does he moving into a starting role? Brandon Neek, you know, hopefully, you know, I know he came in as a highly regarded recruit, uh, but, you know, I believe he had surgery coming out of high school. Uh, hopefully he doesn't have an injury or anything like that that's going to set him back. But if he can show what he did in the postseason, then, you know, you have Wyatt and Neek um, and then Savino, and potentially three really good starters if they can make the transition. So, yeah, a, a, definitely some some uh, interesting pieces coming back um, and look forward to seeing who, who's going to be back next year. I don't know if Nick Kent's going to be back, but I do want to mention him on the podcast yeah. because that def- a couple of those plays, man, <laughs> like talk about performing on the biggest stage. And that one that bounced off of Geloff at third base that he picks up, jumps, and throws to home is one of the craziest, like, plays on any stage. I mean, if he had done that at Stab in high school against right. high school kids, you would have went, oh, wow, that was that was incredible. But to do it on that stage on national TV and, like, I mean, that's a play that forever and ever people are going to remember. That's on par with something like what Kenny Towns did when they actually won the t- won the championship, right? Kenny Towns at third base earns his his famous nickname on the message boards which i won't say here it's a curse word as shock would say (laughs) Uh, (laughs) dives and makes the play at third base and throws the guy out at first back during their their title run this was this was same quality same quality on the on the on a big stage so especially since he's a local kid and his dad coached high school basketball i think i played a couple times with brian and uh at ACAC or something I don't know I played so much pickup basketball at this point I kind of lose track but I'm pretty sure I played with Brian a couple times um but I do know that he could fill it up in high school uh when a local kid does good and there's been a a lot of that this spring um at Virginia that's always worth a mention great great mention I don't think I've ever seen a play like that I mean where he just he he gets it in the you know you think you make the easy play maybe a third get some get one out but he just (laughs) without hesitation gets it and, and throws home and uh, you know, they went, of course, to the dreaded replay for UVA fans. I yeah. was like, please don't, you know, please, this has it to was be close. play. He's got to be out. And uh, sure enough, he was out. But yeah, cool. phenomenal play. It'll be interesting. Yeah, Nick Kent's an interesting one. I mean, his fielding, <laughs> you make plays like he made in the College World Series, that certainly gets the attention, I think, of scouts. But, you know, hitting wise, I think he can improve. Um, coming back next year so hopefully you know he could be another key piece uh, coming back but we'll just have to see well and Ortiz fighting through 
clear injuries, you know, he, he struggled mightily in, in the college world series, all three of those games. And, you know, when you're four five and six guys are leaving men on base like that, we just couldn't get that one or two <laughs> timely hit from that middle part of the order. But, you know, kudos to, to Kent on the defensive end, for sure. That one over the shoulder catch he made, it was like a snow cone, man. <laughs> That was awesome. And the, the announcers were funny. They were kind of uh, giving Logan, Mike, Logan Michaels a hard time for not just kind of stretching like a first baseman. If he had had his foot on the plate when he caught the ball, it would have been – he was out by a mile. But because it was like he was shocked that <laughs> Nick Kitt was able to make the play and throw it to him. He was just like, oh, I have the ball now. I guess I better tag the guy because I'm way off home plate. <laughs> that when was the, a, uh, that when play, the snow – when the snow cone catch happened, the announcers went crazy. And then you're, you're thinking, I mean, at least I, I think most fans are like, okay, you can't top that. Right. <laughs> you almost forget about that one because of the other ones. So. Well, and you know, cut to that next batter. It was, we were one strike away from getting out of that whole jam where it would have been bases loaded and they wouldn't have gotten any runs. It still would have been a three, two game, you know, heading into the, the final inning or maybe even the final two innings. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a cool story with Texas, the guy who did hit the home run. Uh, I think he had been basically oh for the World Series at that point and had played like 900 college baseball games and was, you know, <laughs> clearly a lifer in terms of maybe not going to get to that next level of, of professional ball. So he was just getting all the mileage he could out of his final moments at Texas. So but yeah, that was that was a tough one for uh, for UVA fans. And well, we'll look ahead to next year and did you guys want to recap some other sporting notes uh, across other sports yeah just in terms of of the year that was two two more national championships yes you know women's swimming and diving gets their first men's lacrosse goes gap year repeat and honestly that program is and both of those programs are positioned in a way that they could could do it again so we'll see how both men's lacrosse and swimming women's swimming do um in terms of of trying for a repeat or a three-peat depending on which one you're talking about two more individual national champions acc regular season basketball championship again a non-losing football season the women's soccer team made the run to the to the cup the rowing team won the acc title again right there's just so many interesting storylines and cool storylines that came out of the year that you know nine months ago 10 months ago, did anybody even know for sure that we were playing college sports, right? So, and Virginia's protocols, I think were pretty strict. And I think you saw that take its toll on some of the teams, but the spring ones and the late winter ones seemed to to surge as things got clearer that, hey, we're making it through seasons here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and and then capitalized on it. And and obviously the swimmers with multiple qualifiers for the Olympics and coach DeSorbo named an assistant coach for Team USA as well. They're in training camp in Hawaii before heading to Tokyo uh, for, for the Olympic Games. So, yeah, I mean, Virginia fans are kind of spoiled. You know what I mean? Like most years recently, you get at least one national title, right? Most years <laughs> you get a team national title. So that's as common as not getting one over the last half a dozen to what, eight years or so. So, yeah, in- incredible time to be a Virginia fan across the board. Yep. Uh, Emma Navarro capturing the the singles championship for women's tennis. Uh Michaela Meyer uh, almost snuck in there for the Olympics, uh, qualifying for the Olympics. But that was, you know, getting the 800 meter national championship when you know UVA track and field hasn't been you know a, a, a necessarily a spotlight of a sport for for UVA. So, yeah, I agree with Chris. I think UVA fans are probably spoiled. And yeah, again, the this year we didn't know what was going to happen. But uh, to end the way it did the spring and then I think it's just a just a hopefully a springboard for everyone going into next year of just adding excitement uh, back into everybody's lives, I think. F- focusing on Olympics again for a second. Don Staley is obviously the, the U.S. women's national team coach. That's a Virginia person trying to to get a, another medal. She has medals, but to try to get another one. But Paige Madden, the swimmer, this was interesting to me, wins the national title starts preparing for the Olympic trials, gets COVID, is out for, you know, the, the required quarantine time, recovery time, said the lost training. She said that she didn't feel quite right. Her, her heart rate was through the roof when she first got back in the pool, much higher than it should have been, that her stroke rate was different. So, you know, ha- had a COVID battle in terms of coming back from it and, and conditioning, all that kind of stuff. At one point was like, that's it. My, my Olympic 
hopes are gone, dashed, done, and then manages to come all the way back and make the Olympic team. So that's a really cool story. And then Alex Walsh, Kate Douglas won two in the same event. Um, the two of them talked about how they had actually trained separately for most of the year. And then eight weeks uh, leading up to the trials and started training together. And they had kind of helped each other through the ready room and like, hey, let's go get this. And, you know, that, that race was crazy in terms of the finish. We talked about that on a previous podcast, but one of them, I think it was Alex said she couldn't even feel her legs the last 15 meters. It was all arms. <laughs> and <laughs> Kate Douglas said she felt for sure that she was in fifth place just in terms of how she felt during the race. She goes, I, I was sure I didn't make the team. I was positive. I was in like fifth place. She touches the wall and looks at the scoreboard and it's like, I'm second, I'm going to the Olympics. <laughs> right. <laughs> so just to hear um, those three young women talk about their experience as they prepare to go to Tokyo was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So many good stories. That's why you guys make the big bucks running a UVA fan site, right? All these uh, champions everywhere. Boom. Well, we are going to take a, a short break. We'll talk about Trey Murphy's upcoming uh, NBA draft stock on the rise. It seems like we've been talking about that for a few weeks. It just keeps going up and up and up. So that's awesome for him. And another uh, local Hoops star decides to go somewhere other than UVA, which was an interesting decision here uh, in recent days. So we'll get into that, maybe a little bit of football uh, as well. So it's all coming up and we'll talk about this new uh, Metallica Blacklist tribute album and some other of our uh, favorite tribute albums as we turn the tables a little later on in the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Saber.com Closing in on NBA draft time and Trey Murphy the third seems to be the pick du jour. Every team <laughs> seems to have him on their uh, board. He's been meeting with various teams and the, the draft combine took place. He and Sam Hauser took part in that among the top 70 or so uh, folks invited. Uh, and that some of that was on TV. You might've caught that, but uh, yeah, it seems like he he's, you know, uh, singing the program's praises, which is nice as far as UVA and uh, future recruits. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where he falls as we thought originally when we started talking about all this, oh, maybe second round, maybe the top of the second round. And it was like, okay, late first round. Now it's like, he might be like a mid first round guy. So what do you guys make of all that? And um, talk about Hauser and Huff's prospects too, if you would. Look like Hauser helped himself uh, during the combine as far as shooting well, playing with pretty good energy on defense uh, and playing well. I'm not exactly sure where Jay is going to end up falling. Uh, he's still an intriguing prospect, but to me, like Murphy and Hauser seem to be the kind of hotter names as far as uh, looking for the draft. I, my opinion, I think Murphy's probably going to – I could see late first round, early second is probably where I, I think he's going to end up going. But as Chris has mentioned before, that, you know, that top 40 is really the key. It's not necessarily first round anymore. But, yeah, if, if Hauser gets a chance with his special shooting ability, if he can continue to improve, you know, athletically and things like that, I think he could be an, uh, an interesting um, piece uh, maybe in the NBA. Uh, but, yeah, it'll, it'll, be, uh, it'll be interesting. But, yeah, Murphy's just you know, shoot, shooting up the boards. And great news. I think that's, you know, obviously anytime you can move guys to the NBA, that's definitely a key. Uh, these days but you look ahead towards next year now UVA you know loses a guy who potentially could have been a key piece for next year's team but going back to my earlier comments about keeping that core together I think you you know you say you grow with the guys you recruit which could mean some some years where it's uh, you know a little bit uh, you know bump kind of a bumpy road developmental wise you know your guys stepping into roles they're not used to uh, so we may see that a little bit next year but at the same time it's not going to be the same problem that we had last year which was so much depth where you know guys who, who are playing are, are are happy but then there are going to be guys who aren't happy with the with their roles and we saw that you know a few guys left this offseason so great but you know bottom line great for murphy and uh, excited to see where he's going to end up going in the draft murphy you know i originally thought late 20s was the upside and it sounds like that's no longer the upside late first round was the vibe i thought when he first declared now it seems like, and that was even knowing that NBA scouts were high on him this year, that his combination of length, you know, he measured at six, seven without shoes, but six, nine with shoes. But more importantly, um, where the top of your head is, doesn't really matter. His wingspan is seven feet and he can flat out shoot. So kind of knowing all that, he seemed like a pretty safe pick to, to get into the, 
to into the draft somewhere in the 60 picks. It didn't seem overly risky from that standpoint. To me, it was all about second contract. Can you maximize this? Can you maximize that? A lot of that was based on thinking 27, 26 or later, all the way through 40 or 45 as kind of his sweet spot. It sounds like it might, he might sneak into Jerome and Anderson territory, which would be early 20s and maybe even teens. You know, there's at least one, one projection out there saying that his ceiling is now the teens. You have to go. You know, before I thought it was maybe borderline where you could say, hey, if, you know, late first round, early second round, yes, you'll get a guaranteed contract, but your second contract, the, how the, you know, how the guaranteed money works, how it's structured, it may be worth considering coming back and, and seeing if you could play into the teens. If you're already there, you just go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, he may not. He may not go 16, 17, 18, 19, right? It may be 20 through 25, but anywhere through there, the Jerome Anderson territory is a no-brainer and you're locked into a multiple-year contract, not just a second-round guarantee where it's a year or two. You're talking multiple years and then a team option and then a player option. And Yeah, absolute no-brainer. So I- I'm a little surprised still that his ceiling has crept up that high um, because there were times that during Virginia season, it felt like, you know, you could get more, you could get more out of him based on his size and, and shooting ability. And obviously there are some holes in his game that have been talked about here on message boards and draft projections. I think even if we had Trey Murphy sitting here, he, he would talk about where he's trying to improve. Right. So off the bounce, create your own shot guarding bigger players because he still is very thin um, after growing from 6'4 to 6'7, six, 6'9, six, whichever way you want to do it. But those holes don't overshadow that. You know, he was 50, 40, 90 club this year, shooting percentages wise. Um, he can throw down at the rim and there will be some space in the NBA to do that at times. Depending on who drafts him, it may not be one of those things where he needs to be a starter right away. Just because you're a first round draft pick doesn't mean the team needs you to start. So the holes in his game, I think, are something NBA teams think they can develop. Um, even if I'm a little surprised that his ceiling is around the 20th to 25th pick, maybe even late teens versus later first round. So he's gained some steam here and that's good for him. I think it's good for the program too, from essentially off the radar to first round pick. In a year where you didn't even get the normal training with Mike Curtis and company, <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I would be selling if I was doing the the recruiting sales pitch. Be like, hey, like, we only need six months to turn you in, nine months to turn you into an NBA draft pick. <laughs> well, and I think that's what UVA fans sometimes forget is he, I mean, he played two years at Rice. You know, Rice is not really known as a basketball powerhouse or their or conference even or anything, but he did have two years of major college basketball before he came here. It wasn't a Woldenton side, you know, lighting it up on a, a different level of competition and that sort of thing, or coming in from a foreign land and, you know, all of that, all those question marks that we've deal, dealt with. But I would rank him talking about his, his leaping ability and dunking ability. I, he's got to be a top five dunker all time. Doesn't he for UVA? Just some of those in-game dunks that he threw down. I mean, Justin Anderson's up there, but, in my time here in the last 15 years or so, I would definitely rank him right up there with the the best dunkers. He didn't do it a whole lot, but uh, when he did, he, he certainly flew down the baseline. But talking about the timeline too with him, guys, it was interesting to me. He, he announced the agent aspect, I think, before he had even taken part in the combine. So does that indicate to you guys that because you'd almost think even if he had that, he wouldn't announce it until later because you kind of want to get that feedback and maybe see, do you think he had some kind of assurance from a team that they were like, if you are available at this point in the first round, we are going to pick you. Is that what that sort of means? Or is it just, he was confident in his own ability and he wanted NBA teams to know that he was going for this thing with all his gusto. I think it was a combination of all those things had gotten the written feedback already from, from the commission that you submit to or whatever. And then had, was having interviews and workouts. So just because he had been to the combine doesn't mean he wasn't in contact with teams, right? So, right. yeah, I mean, I think the combination of those things and then you're hearing, like, it's no longer just scout interest. It's front office interest, <laughs> right? These teams have interest in you. Then you say, hey, I'm all in. So teams don't worry about as they're doing their due diligence and then you withdraw this week or yeah. something. 
once that feedback trickled in, it was a no brainer to go ahead and get the ball rolling on all the various aspects of being a professional. So Chris is there, I know you're the NBA, uh, NBA fan here. So what, any team that you think would be a good fit that immediately comes to mind for a Murphy or even a Hauser? Right. So, I mean, if you're looking at the twenties, the Knicks are kind of on the front end of the twenties there, they could use shooting. They're not a great three point shooting team and they're building. So they, they have room to take on somebody that could have a role. So that that's interesting. I know he's been on at least one mock draft to the Knicks in terms of Murphy. The other teams through there though, Lakers need a cheap contract that can shoot. Right. So really any con- contender, cause you're paying so much money to LeBron and Anthony Davis 76ers are in there. They're paying so much money to Simmons and Embiid and Tobias Harris. I'm trying to think of who else is through the through that late first round. But any of those contenders that could use a cheap contract for a contributor that you know can shoot and you know that you can create space for because you got all these these superstars. Yeah, that's a possibility. The Nets, I think, are in that late late uh, first round area. So any of those teams, I could see taking the risk because the downside of the risk is zero. You have stars locked in for multiple years at all of those places. So there is no risk to taking a flyer on someone that can shoot and it's cheap. Then you have him locked in for three years at a rate that's going to be cheaper than trying to go out and get a, a, you know, a third, third star or whatever. You have the mid-level exception that you can sign veterans with. Right. But even that's higher than the rookie contract. So He's in a good spot for the skill that he has in terms of what teams need and how the financial structures work in the NBA. I could see any of those teams. Yeah, it's, it's low risk, high reward in their case. Looks like Oklahoma City has three picks in the top 18. Would be kind of interesting if he ends up there with Ty Jerome. Washington, they certainly could use some defense and three-point shooting. They're in at 15 with their, I think that's their only pick in the draft. So, man. You know, he, he worked out he or- be a wizard. Yeah, he interviewed with the Spurs at 14. I think they are 13, somewhere through there. Golden State has two picks. You know, there's some murmurs that Golden State may package the seventh pick and something else and then move back. There, there's another team, and we know that team loves shooting. So um, yeah. it's going to be interesting to watch some of the maneuvering that goes on for someone like Murphy. Yeah, yeah I, I think he's going to find himself in a situation that he's going to have an opportunity to earn his way. And that's ultimately what you want for, for the kid coming out of, out of Virginia. Hauser that Chris asked about had a decent combine, certainly played well in a couple of those games. And listen, his skill is the same thing. He can really shoot. And in today's NBA, that's a huge, huge skill because you need guys that can either space the floor for your creators, or you need guys who can get their own shot in terms of, of, of making threes. Hauser's not a get his own three kind of guy, I don't think but he can certainly floor space for you. I don't think there's any question about that. It's the other end. Who does he guard in the NBA? That was the question I had about Mike Scott coming out of college too, though. And, you know, he's carved out a nice little NBA career. A little bit J.J. Redick way back. You know, obviously his career started forever ago. (laughs) He'd been in the league for an eternity. But the question with him coming out, who do you guard in the NBA, right? So if Hauser can figure that out, how to stay on the floor in terms of defensively, he could have a role. I mean, he's 6'8", can really shoot. You, you think about guys like Duncan Robinson and Cam Johnson with, with Phoenix has shown to be more than a shooter during these playoffs, but coming out, that's kind of what you thought. Great shooter. Yep. Uh, da- Davis Bertans was a 40, the 42nd pick by the Spurs. He has like an $85 million contract with the Wizards. <laughs> I mean, like, and he's in that 6'7", six, 6'8", six, range. So Yeah, if he can figure out who to defend in the NBA, Hauser could also find his way to at least a roster spot. Well, and I'm glad you brought up Redick because, um, you know, I see I've been watching a lot of NBA playoffs here this year. And, you know, you see a guy like Kennard out there and for the Clippers or Pat Connaughton for the Bucks. And in some ways, those guys are only playing as much as they're playing because of injuries and they haven't been necessarily out there that much. They're pretty much out there to shoot. <laughs> and so then they get exposed when they actually do have to play defense. But, you know, we've seen even a guy like Seth Curry who can shoot the lights out, he gets taken out late in games because he can't, you know, they, he's a liability on defense. You know, even two of the most talented guys in the league, Giannis and Ben Simmons, they're talking about trading Ben Simmons now because he can't make a free throw. <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, the the money that's just flying around for guys yeah. that can't even make free throws. It's pretty crazy. Canard's an interesting one. That's an interesting kind of comp yeah. um, in terms of what his role could be. So, you know, Connaughton's a freak athlete. So he's one that I don't think compares quite as well. He's also shorter than Hauser, obviously. But 
Okay. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like if he can carve out a role. And you know, Huff, I think is is unique in the sense that he's he's seven feet tall, seven feet two, I think is what he measured at. You know, there, there's still room for huge bodies in the NBA, but not like in starring roles necessarily, unless you're like a DeAndre Ayton who is not only big but also extremely mobile. You know, a Capella has a role with the Hawks because he's so mobile, even though he's not a great offensive threat. Huff would have to try to go the Brook Lopez route where you're uh, a rim protector, you're decent in like drop coverage, although Trey Young torched them in drop coverage early in that series. Can you play drop coverage? And then can you stretch the floor as a big? So, yeah, there's an outside possibility that he could find his way into the league somewhere, but it's got to be in a Lopez, Kaminsky, you know, bigger guys like that role. It's different now. You have, you have to be more like a, a Lopez or somebody like that for it to work, I think. I think he's got about the same build as Porzingis in a similar game. I mean, he's not quite as offensive minded. Porzingis is better handle, I guess, but it's interesting to see the former who uh, Rick Carlisle joining up pretty much immediately after uh, leaving Dallas. He's now the coach of uh, Malcolm Brogdon in Indiana. So yeah, heading back to Indiana there. Yeah. Good stuff there. And I want to make a quick mention. We were talking about local, uh, sports heroes. <laughs> and uh, I guess there were some rumblings that Justin Taylor of, of stab was going to choose UVA. He ended up going to Syracuse. So still notable that a, a local kid <laughs> makes it into a, a big time program like that. But what did you guys make of all of that? Was there any Chris Horn? Did you think at any point he was leaning towards UVA or did you kind of know it was not really in the cards for us? Uh, well, first of all, great kid. Spoke one of the few times. Uh, uh, really nice family. So definitely happy for him heading off to Syracuse. So I guess the uh, Syracuse fan base got a little bit bigger in JPJ in the years to come. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, he he was one of the he and Isaac McNeely. Isaac McNeely, of course, who is committed to Virginia, were both offered about the same time, and they were really the first two offers that Tony Bennett extended in the class 2022. McNeely took it a couple months later. And so he, after he committed though, it seemed like, you know, I'm not sure if it was a combination. I mean, you you never know exactly what goes on behind the scenes. Maybe, you know, Justin just wanted to just to to kind of get out of town or maybe it just felt like Syracuse was the, uh, the better fit, but it also seemed like UVA wasn't necessarily pursuing him as heavily after McNeely committed. Now they were still interested in keeping tabs on him, but that's at least the sense that I got. So it really wasn't a a huge surprise. I think a lot of people were thinking Syracuse, Indiana, North Carolina, uh, one of those. And I think Indiana probably would have been the most ideal because you don't really have to, if he blows up, you don't have to really (laughs) play against him. But, you know, Syracuse probably second uh, most ideal to North Carolina and even Virginia Tech was in that final five. So, yeah, not, not, a, not a huge shock. I think right now, as far as UVA basketball recruiting, I think it's waiting to see what Isaac Trout, what the next step is for him, the 6'9 forward out of Nebraska. You know, he took an official visit to North Carolina this past weekend and haven't he heard. He went to Michigan State too, didn't he? Yeah, he went to Michigan State. Uh, and then I think he went back to Creighton. Uh, I'm not sure if that was official or unofficial, but he that was the second visit he made there. Um, and then he went to North Carolina this past weekend. We haven't heard a lot from him this past weekend. As I mentioned here, I'm curious to see what his next step is going to be. Because I think if it is waiting a long time to make a commitment, I don't think that necessarily bodes well for Virginia. Because I think Virginia's put its best foot forward. I think he knows what Virginia has to offer and what kind of fit it would be. So, you know, if he waits, I'm not, you know, I could be wrong, certainly, but um, I don't know if that really bodes well for Virginia if he does wait to make his college choice. So that's kind of what we're looking for. And then, you know, we're seeing some new scholarship offers come out as uh, Tony Bennett and his staff can evaluate. They were able to evaluate two weekends this month. July is the uh, AAU month. So uh, there will be three evaluations weekends there. So I think we'll see some more offers go out. But again, I think a lot of people were anxious to see what Isaac Trout's next moves is going to be, whether it's making a decision soon or waiting, um, uh, waiting, whether it's till the fall or even, even beyond that. The interesting part that ties into all of that Murphy recruiting this, that, the other Virginia does appear to be done. They're, they're going to sit tight with the roster they do have. And that is an extremely popular topic on the, the basketball message board right now is strategically, is that the right move or does Virginia need another big in particular, but more importantly with trout, if you go and get another big from the transfer portal, 
who's got two years left, three years left. What is that? What signal are you sending to, to, to Isaac Trout? So there's a little bit of a short-term and long-term deal that you have to do with, with roster balancing and roster management. And the message board conversations almost all focus on the short-term. We need another big for this year. I, uh, Shedrick's health and Kafaro's health and can Gardner really play the five and all the angles that are being talked about there, all of which makes sense but you do have to take the long-term lens into account as well. And O'Connor mentions that with baseball a lot too, that when you're making pitching decisions, you not only are deciding for Wednesday's midweek game, you're also deciding <laughs> for Saturday's weekend game at the same decision point. This is the same thing on a bigger scale to me. If you take another big, I think it could send a bad message to Trout. And we've seen Bennett multiple times, including in a recent VirginiaSports.com article by Jeff White, and Chris has mentioned it here multiple times, that he wants to try to get the core group together and maybe carry smaller scholarship numbers to make sure that, A, you have room to take portal if you absolutely need it, but more importantly, to maybe keep the mix right, keep the right mix versus a full mix. Well, and uh, in the latest email uh, you guys sent out through uh, the saber.com, it you talked about offers and wing prospects, and we're going to get into that a little bit or... Just tell people to sign up for the email. <laughs> sign up for the email, but no, I can sort of talk about it. But no, yeah, I mean, just uh, as I mentioned there, you know, UVA basically had five scholarships extended in the class of 2022. So those are guys who are rising seniors. One of those was to McNeely. The other one was to Taylor. So those guys are, are you know, off the, off the board. McNeely obviously going to Virginia. Uh, so that leaves three guys basically with scholarship offers. Isaac Trout, we know, is a top target of Virginia's, and and Tony Bennett really wants him. Bodie Clintman is a native of Sweden who's transferring into the United States. He's going to play his senior high school season at uh, uh, Sunrise Christian in Kansas. UVA's, you know, he's seen receptive to UVA's pitch early, but we'll see where we're, we, you know, we're not sure exactly where things are going to go with him. And then Austin Nunez out of Texas is a point guard. It was, it was kind of interesting. I think the first two uh, uh, evaluation weekends, I don't, I don't believe Tony Bennett made his way to Texas to watch Nunez. So I'm not sure if that maybe sends a signal that, hey, maybe UVA's interest maybe isn't as strong when you compare that to Isaac Trout, he, uh, you know, according to Isaac, he told me that uh, Coach Bennett mentioned that he will be at every one of his AAU events next month. So basically showing you that how much interest he has in, in Trout and how much, how badly he wants him at UVA. But yeah, so a, a, a new offer came out in class 2022, Tyrell Ward, who's kind of a wing athletic slasher type can do multiple things out of DeMatha Catholic, which is interesting, interesting because their head coach is now at Virginia Tech as the associate head coach um, under Mike Young. So um, a lot of people thought that Tyrell would just go go to Virginia Tech probably. But so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And then uh, UVA extended their first class 2023 offer um, to a kid out of Philadelphia, 6'7 kid. So that worked out pretty well the last time uh, they were able to land a, about a 6'7 kid out of the Philadelphia area and DeAndre Hunter. So yeah, Justin, Justin Edwards. So they're kind of getting started on both those fronts. I mean, last summer was basically taken away and, and really this high school year uh, as far as for evaluations. So they're really getting, you know, both classes are important, 2022, 2023. And so June and July are going to be really big in terms of solidifying who they really want to go after and who, who those top targets are going to be for both of those classes. Well, and with um, Trout, you know, looking at it from his perspective, obviously he's, you know, in the top tier of recruits across the country. He, he can kind of pick and, and choose who he wants. He's making these visits. But, you know, the last year or two, these kids in his echelon, they, they kind of have that extra decision of like, well, do I want to go G League or this other, you know, the overtime league or whatever. I mean, have you heard any rumblings about that? Or I guess he has to be pretty close to the vest if he's, if he's even thinking about that stuff with NCAA rules and whatnot. But man, I mean, is he that good? We're talking about that good of a player. Uh, he, he's, he's very six, nine skilled. And he, I, I mean, I think whether he's that good remains to be seen, but I think as you mentioned, Jeff, that is an option for these guys now. So I'm sure, you know, something, I'm not sure I haven't, he hasn't specifically mentioned that option right now. He's, he's mainly been talking about colleges, but I, I'm sure it's, uh, you know, something that's, that it's there and 
you know, maybe it is worth waiting to make your college decision if that is potentially a factor. But at this point, yeah, he's mainly just spoken about his college interest and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see where we go. Again, that's what, that's why I'm, I'm kind of focused on the short term for him as far as if he's going to be ready to make his college decision now or if he is going to wait, because if he is going to wait, maybe that does indicate that he's looking either for maybe another another school to come in, uh, that he may feel like it's a better fit, or maybe he uh, is, is you know, keeping his options open for that NBA-ish opportunity. Mm-hmm. I, for one, think that stuff is a little too new to trickle down that far, meaning he is not a top 10 projected draft pick right now. Okay, so the guys in the G League that went that route this year instead of college, most of them, or at least the ones that are hitting the headlines that are getting our attention, that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Uber, the Uber elite, not yeah. the just elite, which he's elite. <laughs> you know, it's not like he's a bad basketball player. I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> but like, say Chet Holmgren, for example, going to Gonzaga, he's still going to Gonzaga. Yeah, you know, he's not going to the G League. So there, there is some weighing out yeah. for certain prospects without question. But I don't think it's as much of a thing as the media coverage of those things makes it seem like currently. Maybe in five years, that's different. If, if the that model proves that every guy that goes that route is a lottery pick, <laughs> you know, that changes the market. And then in terms of the overtime league and the other, um, there's another professional kind of high school league that's forming as well. Yeah. I'm just not buying that until we see what the product is. So um, I don't see a lot of people jumping ship to a unknown, an unknown product like that. If their upside is, is what it is with someone like Trout going the traditional proven college route. I feel like the folks that will go to those leagues are ones who have a variety of other reasons that they want to take a, a potentially high reward route, but also a higher risk route. Mm-hmm. And that would be my guess for as, as for the reasons that Chris mentioned, but I think he he's, seems to me more of a college first type of player. And then if he, you know, depending on what happens, he gets there. So I think he'll end up going the college route in my opinion. So, but also it's cool. One guy we know coming back to Virginia, Isaiah Wilkins uh, as a graduate. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh that, that was exciting news. And I have to think that's kind of reju- uh, rejuvenating as well, maybe for Tony Bennett to have some of his past players come in now you can kind of tutor him as well in terms of the coaching aspect. And I think that, you know, both of those guys seemed excited about that, that development. So that's, that's pretty great to see. I think. I have a theory on which former player is going to uh, succeed Tony Bennett whenever he decides to hang it up. We'll save that for a future we'll a couple of weeks off and, you know, we'll reassess. Future. Okay. <laughs> the tease of all teases. <laughs> no, I, I just been, you know, you can't help but think about that stuff when Coach K and Roy and all these guys are Bayheim is nearing the, the end of his run. But well, we think he might coach another 10 years. Who knows? A couple of football recruits wanted to quickly mention Chris Horn. I uh, want to talk about Brody Meadows and Will Betridge. Yeah, Brody Meadows uh, out of Graham High School in Bluefield, Virginia. So an in-state kid, uh, 6'7", 300, a big in-state kid, 6'7", 300 pounds. Offensive lineman committed to Virginia um, uh, this past week, and I think EVA is up to eight commitments right now. Will Betridge is a place that's one of the top place kickers in the country in the class of 2022, um, and he has a scholarship offer from Virginia. A lot of times you see colleges go the preferred walk-on route, which we've seen Virginia do. But uh, Virginia has offered him a first full scholarship, and um, I, I was able to get in touch with him. He made an official visit this past weekend. Uh, sounds like uh, Michigan, um, LSU, and Virginia are the top three, which LSU and Virginia are the full scholarship offers, uh, whereas Michigan's at this point is preferred. But we've seen Georgia Tech kind of throw their hat in the ring recently with uh, with a full scholarship as well. So it'll be interesting to see. He, he's expected to make a decision soon, and that's going to be the theme of July. I think there's a lot of a lot of prospects making decisions this week alone. There's going to be, uh, you know, several line prospects in particular making their college choices, and then uh, several others have set uh, several other prospects have set dates, uh, commitment announcement dates uh, for later this month. So after a busy June of making a ton of visits, I think a lot of these kids are ready to make their decisions. So it should be action packed again. It looks like another offensive line recruit is leaning Virginia. If you believe all those crystal balls and stuff that are on the national site, so. 
to re- the only reason I bring that up is the offensive line recruiting part is fascinating right now. They are really, at least in terms of the type of, of prospect they're bringing in, they're bringing them in consistently. And the, these are some big dudes coming out of high school already. So um, it'll be interesting to see what that does from the program standpoint, right? Because typically if the trenches are good, you at least have a chance to be in every every season, every you know, division race if division still exists <laughs> when these kids are here in five years, um, you know, or when they're on the field in four years. But yeah, the offensive line recruiting is something that I have circled as just a point of interest. I thought you didn't follow recruiting. True. I, I don't know the kid. I don't know the kid's name. <laughs> I just know big picture wise. No, I, I agree. And Meadows is the latest. You look at next summer, they have Andrew Gentry, who was a five-star recruit coming out of high school, four or five-star recruit uh, coming in. He, he's he's uh, concluding his two-year mission. So he'll be in next next uh, in 2022 season. And then UVA is still in the mix for uh, Zach Rice, who's the five-star out of Liberty Christian Academy in the class of 2022. So, yeah, UVA, uh, in addition to, as, as Chris mentioned, UVA landed some, uh, a really top class this past year. Um, as well so you know UVA is doing really well offensive line recruiting uh, Joe Brown out of Utah is the is the prospect who's um, Virginia seems to be in pretty good position with so we'll see where, where he ends up uh, he's supposed to make his commitment later today definitely UVA trending in the right direction in that regard for sure well you're like the Mel Kuyper of uh, the saber.com Chris I don't know how you keep all these names and, and places and years <laughs> and positions straight but you do it. Great job. And uh, the saber.com is the place, of course, to get uh, all of the info. Now we turn the tables uh, for musical discussions sometimes on the podcast and for uh, various other rants and things. But I think we're gonna go back to music this week because Metallica has announced the tribute album of all tribute albums. They've got over 50 artists from all different genres, all covering their uh, huge selling black album from the early nineties. They're coming out with like a remastered edition of the original. And then they've enlisted all kinds of amazing artists from St. Vincent to Jason Isbell to Miley Cyrus and Elton John teaming up on uh, one track. Uh, Chris Stapleton's on it. 53 artists covering the 12 songs. So get ready for a whole bunch of versions of Enter Sandman. <laughs> I think Weezer does a version of it. It's uh, pretty wild. So we'll talk about that coming up here uh, next on the saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about. You know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate and add something. All right, welcome back to the last segment of the Saber.com podcast. And this is also the end of what we're going to call season one because we record this, publish this through Anchor, and Anchor has the ability to divide by seasons. And so we're going to cleanly break those um, within the sports year, basically. So that always kind of restarts on July 1st. So the end of season one of the Saber.com podcast. (laughs) Um, But we're turning the tables. And early on in the podcast, we did that to put... Jeff Sweatman and his kind of area of expertise uh, with music. So we talked a lot about music. We start threads on the message board. And this one's interesting because Metallica is such a well-known musical artist, obviously. So he mentioned going out of the last segment there, a a tribute album. If you Google best tribute album, you get all kinds of articles and things. So we'll see if we can find one that, that seems interesting. But one that I thought of off the top of my head when Jeff said he wanted to do this topic was an Eagles tribute album called Common Thread that I remember owning as a teen, I think it was Um, a lot of country artists doing a tribute to the Eagles. That's just one that came off the top of my head as one I remember, but yeah, this one is jam packed with celebrity star power from Metallica. And then I don't know if you had any others that jump off the top of your head. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of a connoisseur of soundtrack albums and tribute albums to a certain extent. It's just something about, when even if they're not even that good um there's just something intriguing to me when you can get a cool collection of artists all paying tribute to one particular artist or one particular cause uh there was a john lennon one instant karma uh that was a benefit for um 
relief efforts in Darfur, as I recall. That, that's been about 10 years ago now, but that, that was a two-disc collection of just amazing renditions of John Lennon songs. Some of my all-time favorite albums, honestly, are tribute albums. There's one in the early 90s that was called Sweet Relief, and it kind of paid tribute to the songwriting of Victoria Williams, who was pretty obscure at the time. And it was just all the biggest alternative artists of the day really were on that, uh, from Pearl Jam to Soul Asylum and Lou Reed was on there. And it, and you kind of go, well, wait, what? all these people must, I mean, this Victoria Williams person must be pretty cool if all these artists are doing her songs and they, they were great versions. And part of that whole project was to kind of spotlight. She uh, has multiple sclerosis. And so, you know, a lot of times independent musicians, even if they're on big labels, sometimes they don't have health insurance. So it was a way to kind of spotlight that issue in the context of here's this amazing artist. Uh, let's help her out with her bills a little bit. And, you know, so that worked out pretty well. And um, they've continued that Sweet Relief series. The, the next one was for Vic Chestnut, who also had MS. And uh, they've done a third one in more recent years. I think basically they've created a whole Sweet Relief foundation for uh, musicians that need to to cover their health care. So that's been a whole cool thing. Um, there was a tribute to Graham Parsons, which is one of my all-time favorite albums, Return of the Grievous Angel. And he was another kind of somewhat obscure, kind of straddling those lines of country and folk and rock back in the late 60s, early 70s, had a big influence on the Stones during their uh, Sticky Fingers era and you know, passed away at a young age, but his songs are, are really enduring. And, you know, Lucinda Williams, I think was the main, uh, or Emmylou Harris was the brainchild of that project. And she enlisted folks like Beck and the Pretenders and Lucinda Williams and just great renditions of great songs. And it, the, the best tribute albums, I guess, make you go back to those original songs and kind of hear them in a different way and, or rediscover, you know, how great an artist was that maybe you didn't know about before. There was a John Prine tribute, Broken Hearts and Dirty Windows. It came out in 2010. Tons of great artists on that. Avett Brothers and uh, My Morning Jacket and uh, Justin Vernon and Bon Iver. So that one I thought was excellent too. And it's funny, I, I had a chance to interview David Brothers a couple years after that had come out. And you would think David Brothers just sonically would have been hugely influenced by John Prine, but it turned out at the time they were asked to do that tribute, they didn't really know anything about John Prine. They hadn't followed his career really, didn't know a lot about the songs, but it sort of forced them to kind of go back and be like, wow, this, how did we miss the boat on this guy? You know? So I thought that was funny because you, you hear these loving renditions sometimes and you think, oh man, they must've really been a huge fan of that band. And sometimes it's just like, nope, they, they were asked to do it and they did it. And, you know, <laughs> maybe after the fact they became a fan in the process. So I think that might be a little bit of what's going on with Metallica, although, you know, they're, they're just so huge that it, it, you know, they've been pretty unavoidable for the last uh, 20, 30 years, but this is where you've got 53 artists covering the 12 songs on the black album, just that one album, no other Metallica songs involved here. It's going to be out digitally and streaming on September 10th on vinyl and CD, October 1st, all the profits donated to charities of each contributing artist choice along with Metallica's own foundation, which is called All Within My Hands. And they've already kind of been leaking out some uh, like St. Vincent's version of Sabbath True, Jason Isbell and 400 Units version of Sabbath True, Miley Cyrus with, who all does she have on here? It's like Elton John and like Yo-Yo Ma, Robert uh, uh, Trujillo, he is the bass player in Metallica. So he is a part of this too and Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers. They're all on a version of Nothing Else Matters. And that epic video came out uh, in recent days. So if you had to pick one name from the people that you know are going to be on this, that you're look, you want to hear their version, just one, who you picking? <laughs> oh man, uh, Rodrigo y Gabriela, I'm sure will do an amazing version of The Struggle Within. They, they're metal fans anyway, and that's kind of an influence with their music, even though they're like basically instrumental duo guitar band <laughs> and they do a lot of acoustic but yeah that that'll be pretty epic but yeah they have like edm people on here country people like it'll it'll be pop you know the, the neptunes are on here so it's gonna be something when that whole thing comes out it'll, it'll probably be a little too much to take in that's what i like about some of the ones i just mentioned because you can almost listen to it as like a regular album 
because it's a bunch of different artists, but they're all kind of in the same vein. And it, it's one of those albums you can put on and enjoy the whole thing. This is going to be a little more like, I want to hear the Weezer version of Inner Sandman. And then I'll say the rest for <laughs> next week. <laughs> that gives it longevity. Maybe that's what they're shooting for. Yeah. Streaming numbers. That's what they're Your, looking for now. Yeah, streaming numbers, right? <laughs> Your John Prine project, project still going? Yes. And I wanted to let people know there's a little bit of an update. So the, the mastering is happening as we speak. The artwork is getting finalized in the next week or two. So I'll be sending it all off to our friends at Blue Sprocket. They will make the vinyl and hopefully it will be out in time for John Prine's birthday, which is October the 10th. Folks can uh, go to GoFundMe.com and look up, uh, just search John Prine Tribute and it's the only one that comes up. So I'm pretty yeah, proud will. of it. And these, man, amazing renditions of songs by a bunch of local artists. And the money raised is going to help uh, local artists in need. And we mentioned that back when you first were starting to work on it. So we will relink that for everyone so that you can get in on that uh, GoFundMe if you want to. And that's it for season one. Thank you, Jeff, for hosting. Chris, for being Mel Kuyper of the Sabre. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, obviously, thanks for listening out there. Uh, until season two in a couple of weeks. Go Hoos.